Okay, guys, let's, uh, let's get into it and uh, open our time of study in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, the opportunity to be here. I want to thank you also for keeping us safe on the slick roads out here, bringing your people together. We uh, certainly appreciate your faithfulness for that. Ask now that uh, <clears throat> you would pre- prepare our hearts to receive your word by faith, with full assurance that uh, you will use the pure milk of your word to conform us more and more to the image of your Son, um, whom you love and who have, uh, through his death and resurrection, made us your people. And uh, we humbly ask, Father, that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, humble hearts to understand and receive uh, that which goes forth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so we are working through 1 Peter, but we are not quite ready to return. And um, I'm sure given the events of the last couple of weeks, especially this past week, you know, there is no shortage of uh, political commentary. Probably, there's probably a lot of sermons happening regarding the church's relationship to the government <laughs> Um, there, you know, and there's there's so many good resources we can go to uh, for that. Um, so no matter where you are and your convictions with that, uh, trust the Lord will uh, give us His wisdom to uh, respond biblically, to respond ultimately to the honor of Christ. And and one thing I will say is that um, curiously enough, since since getting back and seeing you all here this morning and those that I've spoken with do not seem a bit perturbed at what's happening, and I'm really encouraged by that. It's not to mean that you're ignorant of things, but I, but I would like to think that it is something else, that we are well aware of what Scripture says. We know how it's going to pan out. We know that regardless of how things go down politically, that we are victorious in Christ, and that we continue to be faithful to Him and to proclaim the gospel, and that it will do its work in Christ's time, because he's the one that is running things. And in spite of all evidence to the contrary, it's not what our eyes behold, it's not what we see that proves anything, it's what God's Word says. That's the important thing. And we know that God's Word tells us that Jesus himself leads us in triumphant procession, and that is not going to change. And so, I I encourage you all to take heart. We are here today. We are Christ's church. We are his people. And so in light of that, I want to focus on church, the kind of church we want to be, the kind of uh, church we want to uh, be going forward, to be faithful representatives of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so I I, uh, was thinking about it this week, and you know, even through conversations with a, a dear brother in the Lord that I'm getting to know, Uh, my attention was drawn toward the book of Revelation. We're like, yeah, dude, Revelation. Who doesn't love to be in the book of Revelation? So turn with me to chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. And to some of you from a couple years ago, this will be very familiar. We had a, uh, I thought was a very fun and interesting Bible study, and we had people of all eschatological stripes there. We had dispensationalists. We had amillennial. We had postmillennial. We had historic pre-mill and everything in between. And it was fun sitting down and looking at the text carefully and, and studying it and, and, and um, you know, landing our plane on all those things that we love to fight about. But here we are in the book of Revelation. And maybe one day, who knows, guys, we'll, uh, 
We'll come to the table again and talk through some of these things. I, I, Revelation is such a timeless book and um, very enjoyable, even if some of it is hard to wrap our minds around. But knowing that it is God's Word, it speaks to us today and is a way in which God blesses and builds up His people. So we are here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The Church of Sardis. And just so we know, I am not in any way saying that Emmaus Road resembles the Church of Sardis. One of the reasons that I am actually preaching through this particular letter is because I want to clearly spell out what I don't want our church to look like. Okay. How I don't want us to be going forward. I don't want us to be dead. I don't want us to be listless. I don't want us to be self-sufficient. And here's another thing, since we have one stab at this and we're going through one letter, one of the reasons we pick the dead church is because a dead church is going to have the same problems that the other six problems have. A dead church is a lukewarm church. A dead church is a loveless church. A dead church is a compromising church. It has all those problems, and we'll look in more in depth to that, but we'll go through this carefully verse by verse and see what the Lord tells us. So let's uh, draw our attention to the text, and I will read through it. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God." So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, great text. Letter to the church of Sardis. And note who is speaking here, okay? It is Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings, Lord of lords. So remove this picture from your mind of the innocent, helpless little babe in the manger. The, the one that is before us is the one who has conquered death. The one who lives forevermore. And he describes himself in a particular way. He is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So in each, in each letter to these respective churches, just by way of background, Christ presents himself as a partic in a particular way. And what, what I want you to watch out for is that the way he describes himself is a, is a character of Jesus that actually is the key to solving the problem that the church has. So in this, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we're going to go through this, just a simple outline and the first thing we're going to look at is the congregation. We're dealing with a church in Sardis. And of course, these seven churches are all uh, located in what is known today as modern-day Turkey, back then Asia Minor or just Asia. So to give a little background on Sardis, 
50 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus was sort of the, the main, one of the main church cities that pops out. It's also a recipient of one of these seven letters. So it was located in a, in a fairly close uh, proximity to Ephesus, situated on a mountain, which gives it a natural fortification back then. Landscaping was important if you were going to found a city and if you were going to guard a city. If you wanted to feel any security at all, your geography was of the utmost importance. So it had natural protection. However, this city, maybe perhaps due to this natural fortification, the city let its guard down because twice in its history, it was sacked, completely run over by invading armies, due both times historically uh, to negligence, a failure to watch the city. So you're starting to pick up here on some of the uh, spiritual illusions for a church. It was destroyed also by an earthquake in 17 AD. There was a massive earthquake in that time in that area. It totally destroyed the city. So you could say perhaps even at this time, uh, rebuilding year. Um, <laughs> so a pretty vulnerable place. Located also on five major trade routes, giving the city immense wealth and prestige. So again, a, a really a market city. Uh, when, when you're on a trading route like that and all, you know, all, load, all roads lead to your city, you are going to experience quite a bit of prosperity. And as we know, prosperity often leads to self-sufficiency, often leads to boasting in your own riches and your own resources and all those things. Home to the Temple of Diana, one of the heavy hitters in the Roman pantheon, very revered, very worshipped, and of course, a, a, a pitfall of idolatry and uh, probably a major temptation for those who identified with the local church. Remember also, it's not the churches of Sardis, guys. This is the church of Sardis. From what we know historically, this is one church. So the opportunity to just up and leave and go to another church is not here. So, of course, the mindset here is we got to stick this out and work through this. We are the church representing Jesus Christ in Sardis. If this church dies, what else is there? Okay. We don't have any really real direct information on the planting of the church. As we know, Paul was uh, very vigorous in his ministry efforts, particularly in Asia Minor. Planted several churches there, did a lot of missionary work. So whoever planted this church, we, we could say perhaps was, a, was discipled by Paul, perhaps even the Apostle John. Um, maybe even Peter, again, we can only speculate, but we don't have any historical record. We just know that there is a church that had sprung up there. Um, this is also, keep this in mind, one of the two churches to receive no direct commendation from the Lord. The other, the other is the one we all love to rag on, right? The church of Laodicea. Man, we don't want to become a lukewarm church. We don't want to be a dead church either. So we do well to listen to the Lord. So this is a church that is in pretty bad shape, okay? And it, it establishes a pretty clear warning for every church. And we, 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 we go over a church like this. It's helpful because most of us are at the church we are because we want to be there, okay? Again, the, given all the, 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 the churches that, that are springing up in Colorado, it seems like there's a church planted here every week. As I love to say, there's more churches than 7-Elevens here. There's so many churches, and so there's options. So typically... You can sort of cherry-pick the thing you like, and you go to that church. So you're there because you want to be. And the purpose of saying that is when we, go, when we go to a church, there's things we like about it. So we tend to think, on, on most days, pretty highly of our church. 
We, we, sometimes we, you know, we have our moments of nitpicking. We have our moments of saying things that we don't like, things that we wish were different. But the thing is, we, if, if you like where you're enjoying fellowship, you typically stay there. And so what that can sometimes lead to is an unrealistic view of your church. You develop blind spots. You, 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 you can develop a, an unwillingness to look, to look at the church where it's struggling and to be honest with the condition of it. And so I think this is one of those churches. I don't think a church ever gets voluntarily dead. So that's the congregation. That is the church in the midst of Sardis. Come to the second C, the Christ. Okay, How does Jesus speak of himself to the church in Sardis? First of all, he describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. The number seven being significant because... It speaks to fullness, completeness, wholeness. The seven spirits, an allusion to the Old Testament, having the fullness of the Spirit resting on the Messiah, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Okay, so, seven spirits of God. And he says this, of course, speaks to his fullness. What do we know about fullness when it comes to Jesus Christ? Well, we know that in him the fullness of deity dwells. 100% man, 100% God. Nothing lacking. Speaks also to his omnipresence. Nothing escapes the watchful eye of Christ. He is everywhere. Nothing escapes him. No one can hide from his piercing, all-seeing, all-knowing gaze. But the fact that he's complete means he is everywhere. Remember, Revelation paints Christ as one who walks among his church. His blazing divine presence is with his people never to depart from them. Another thing, speaks, the seven spirits of God speaks to his life-giving power. Now, this is especially pertinent because what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a dead church. We're dealing with a church that needs life. Well, in him, John says, was life, and that life was the light of men. So he is there ready and willing to resuscitate this church, to give new life to it. So that's the seven spirits of God. Here's the other thing referencing Christ. Is the seven stars. Now, look really quickly in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. When he reveals himself to John, and that starts at verse 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying... So here John is terrified, and then Jesus lays his hand on him. Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, note this, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven are the angels of the seven churches. Now, you can take angel as either a heavenly angel or the, the, the same word is used to uh, describe a pastor, like an elder or a servant of the church. Its name means, the name literally means messenger. So it's some kind of messenger. So whether heavenly or earthly, it is serving a heavenly purpose to challenge these churches and to call them, call them to order. So we know that there are persons involved, that there are messengers involved. And of course, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so that is who Christ reveals himself as. So again, the seven stars, they speak to pastor or angels. There's a couple things that we remember. Where are the seven stars located? 
They are in His hand. At verse 20 of chapter 1, which you saw in my right hand. Of course, what is the right hand? It's a place of power. It's a place of authority, but it is also a place of favor. So these, these messengers are serving the purpose of Christ's authority, but they are also in his favor. Okay. So the fact that they are a possession of Christ points to what we call as responsibility. If they belong to him, they are responsible, and by extension the churches are responsible to respond to what the Lord Jesus is saying. Here's another thing involved. The fact that they are in Christ's hand also points, pointing to his strength and power means also his protection. They are protected by the power of Christ. But what does that mean? Accountability. They are held accountable for how they use Christ's protection. Are they going to abuse that security or are they going to walk faithfully? That's the question. So with possession and protection comes responsibility and accountability. That is no different from any church throughout history. If a church is truly going to be a true church, faithful to the Lord Jesus, it takes into account that it is possessed and protected by Christ. We belong to Him. So we are responsible and held accountable for how we respond to His presence among us. And given the way that Christ is presented here in all of his blazing glory and deity, that should scare you a little bit. It should warn us from wandering. Christ is not joking around. So that is the Christ. So keep in mind who is talking to you. Here's the third thing. We normally would come to the commendation, right? Something the church is doing right. Here we don't see it. As Havner says of this church, she has it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. Does that ever bother you? You go to a store and you see something in the window and you think, man, I want that thing. I want that new power tool or I want that new toy, right? And then we go in the store. Oh, sir, I'm sorry. We, don't, we no longer have that in stock. We sold that out last night. You're thinking, what kind of store is this? False advertising. This is the kind of church we are viewing here. All show. All talk, nothing in stock. So let's go to the condemnation. Let's go to the rebuke. Back in the text here. Says this, I know your deeds. So he is well aware of what's going on. He can, he, the church cannot hide its true motives or its true state from the Lord Jesus. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. That you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, what church does not want a good name? What church doesn't want a good reputation? What church does not want to be able to broadcast on their Facebook page before they get banned for hate speech, by the way? What church does not want to be known as, oh man, we're a church. We're alive. The Holy Spirit is here. We're like a family, man. Come to a place where you can belong, where we do verse by verse exposition of the Holy Scriptures. You're going to love it here. And then, of course, the person shows up, and they're looking for those things. Like, those sound like good things. And they show up, but as we know, that, that's the name. That's the name they take. What a better name than to be a church that is alive, right? But looks can be deceiving, as we all know. Looks can be deceiving. There are several looks that churches are giving today, and, I don't, and, it's, and it's easy to try to be exhaustive on this, but I'm trying to, to give you guys things that can be observed readily from the American evangelical uh, environment. Here's a few. Here's several, actually. Go ahead and write them down. This is definitely a note-taking sermon. 
One is the look of activity. Oh, we're busy, right? We're busy for the Lord. We're doing things here, man. Come, be involved, right? The look of activity. Here's the second thing. The look of vitality. We're not just active, man. We're really active. We are, we are alive. We're, do, like, again, we're, we're doing a lot of things. We look like we are healthy, that we have energy, that we're ready to go and take the city by storm. Right? Here's another thing. The look of size. Right? People are generally attracted to larger churches because the, look, the bigger of a church, it looks like, wow, they're really doing stuff done. They doing stuff well. They must be doing something right. Those 5,000 people can't all be wrong. <laughs> size. Must be doing something right. The look of cash. Do they have resources? Do they have money? They may have generous givers, a lot in the bank account. Man, they are ready. They are ready to launch that five bajillion dollar new building fund with the cool children's center and the fountains and the statue of the founding pastor out in front, right? They got the cash, man, because God has blessed them. Here's the other thing. The look of programs. There's something for everyone here. Okay. You know, people show up at the door. Hey, got something for my kids? You got something for my wife? You got something for me? Got something for my got something for my dog? Like some something for everyone. Programs, programs, programs. Again, programs aren't necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying they do not necessarily indicate life in a church or faithfulness. The look of leadership. We all, we all love that charismatic, good-looking, eloquent pastor, right? He just has a way of explaining things in such a pithy manner. You know, things that take me paragraphs to say. This other dude can say in, you know, one statement. You're like, whoa, jaw on the floor. That was profound leadership, man. We all love that charismatic dude at the helm. We all love that Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, handsome, strong, powerful, warrior guy, manly. You know, we love leaders. We love solid. We, we, we love leaders who, who look like they know what they're doing. The look of love. And that's this. Churches that have a counterfeit view of love, those are churches that are in a very bad place. The look of love, the look, the look as if we all really have a genuine affection for one another. I'm, t- I'm talking merely looks. Because if love were present in a church, the church wouldn't be dead. Ephesus had its, you know, Ephesus had that problem, right? It was doing a lot of things right, but it was a loveless church. You know, you have the look of love, but if you have a church that is full of people who gossip and backbite and start fights and can't forgive, can't let things go, can't grow, that love is merely a facade, but it's not really in the church. Here's the other thing that kind of goes along with the, the programs and the cash and the size, is the look of blessing, Sometimes we do that, do we not? Some, we, we, we tend to rebuke people for criticizing a church or maybe even a particular pastor or author because we just say, hey, look at the blessing. God is obviously blessing this guy because he, or this church because it has so much money, so much resources, so many people. It looks like the hand of blessing. Well, just because a person or a group of people or a church seems to be blessed. Perhaps the Lord actually pulled his endorsement from them a long time ago because they've long since been dead. Here's another one we love. The look, and this is the last one, the look of heritage. Man, this person, he wrote 150 books. He planted this church. He was a missionary. 
you know, it's a great man. He planted this church. We kind of, you know, we think about heritage, history, and we think that if the, that if the church has the correct heritage or the correct planter, the correct beginning, that somehow that all falls into the present, right? Has a great heritage, must be a church that is alive and kicking, ready to do the work of the Lord Jesus. All these things, they're not necessarily bad things, but what I'm saying is that they don't prove anything because all they are is window dressing. They're not there in a substantive manner. They're not there because the Holy Spirit is active in that church. And here's what Jesus himself says, but you are dead. See, looks can be deceiving, but the heart is revealing. You are dead. That's what Jesus says in spite of all of these things, in spite of your great reputation in the community of Sardis. You're dead. How do you know you're dead? Because I'm telling you so. In spite of what everyone else agrees upon, Jesus, the Lord, the head of his church, calls you dead. See, there's other condemnation. There's other criticisms toward churches in these seven letters and the other six churches that may be more visual. You know, we, have, we think of Laodicea, right? You guys are lukewarm. You make me sick. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty visual, right? But there is none more shameful or scandalous, I would contend to you this morning, than being dead. None, I would say, brings more contempt and dishonor to the name of Christ than being labeled as dead. And why do I say that? Because Christ is our life. Christ is life itself. Life is found in no other person other than Christ. And it is the church that is brought from deadness to life. If we are the body of Christ, our first characteristic should be we are alive. You wonder if even Jesus has a hard time saying this because he is the life giver. And these people bring reproach to him because they have this great reputation, but it is a fake one. It is a hypocritical one. They are dead. What is a church without life? You ask similar questions. It's like asking what an ocean is without water. What is a forest without trees? What are the heavens without their starry host? You can't understand them without it. In fact, they cease to be that. If, it, if a church is not alive, is it really even a church? How much of a church is it still? This church is dead. It's a dead church. What does it mean to be dead? A couple things important. I think one thing, it doesn't mean to be struggling. Man, a struggling church is better than a dead church. At least it's fighting still, even if it's been knocked over. A couple things in terms of church speak. What does it mean to be a dead church? I think the first understanding is, is simple. Death, we understand, is separation, right? In the spiritual sense, in eternal sense, death is separ eternal separation from God. His judgment is present, but everything good and lovely that points to His grace and mercy and blessings we are separated from. Now, in terms of a church, to be dead means that we are, se we are separating ourselves voluntarily from Christ's sustaining power. We are not relying upon the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to give us power, to give us good gifts so that we can serve one another. That's the first thing. It's a separation from that. We're not plugged in, as it were. Here's another thing. Think of death, we think of no response to stimulus, something that's cold. If you've, if you've ever worked in, a, in healthcare or a hospital, especially in ER, um, you've, you've probably seen a lot of death. We call it a code blue. 
the heart stops beating, the skin gets cold and clammy, the skin loses its color, goes pale, and you poke the person, you prod them, and there's just no stimulus, there's no reaction to an external stimulating factor. Here's another thing. To be dead means to be brain dead. No brain activity. Now, this is serious when we understand it in terms of the church. What does that mean the church has failed to do? It means it's failing to respond to the authority and the headship of Christ. The fact that Christ is our head means that he is in charge, but also he is the message center. He is, he is that, that treasure trove, the source of all wisdom, all knowledge, all grace and goodness. And we are not responding to him if we are dead. In another sense, we are not thinking Christ's thoughts after him. We, do not, we are not employing the mind of Christ. Those are things that a dead church does. Here's another thing, beating heart. See, it's not all mental, it's not all authoritative, it's not all commandments and obedience. Talk about death being the heart has stopped beating. You know, a doctor comes in in a situation, they don't put the stethoscope on the head, they put it on the heart. They want to see if the heart is still pumping blood because the life is in the blood. And what this means is that the church, if it's dead, has lost its affection for Christ and for its people. For his people, there's no zeal in worship. There's no passion to reach the lost. That's why we talk about the things we do. And we talk a lot about worship. That if we are here, where is our zeal? Where is our joy? Where is our desire to express to God the things that are part of his character, the things that are true of him. Where, where, is, where is that outflow of gladness of heart? Well, if you have no beating heart, the joy is not going to be there. There will also be no passion to reach the lost. If you don't remember what Christ has done for you, you're not going to bother telling anybody. So that's what it means to be a dead church, going through some of the technical stuff, because we want to understand this very quickly very clearly because we don't want to say things about our church that are not true, right? So we want to understand what it really means to be a dead church. But here's the sad thing, moving on, is that typically dead churches don't die because they're murdered, right? Churches die because they commit suicide. This is what makes this so tragic and yet so heinous at the same time. A church that has been granted life and yet over time has basically bled out. The church doesn't die right away. We know that. Churches die over time. They starve themselves out. To be very, to, to give very graphic imagery, churches often slit their own wrists. When churches die, it's typically violent. It's ugly. It's devastating. And it is completely contradictory to the life we have in Christ, and it is offensive to His life-giving nature and grace. But here is the spiritual autopsy to determine what exactly has happened to cause that death. And again, the, the, these, these numbers are so great, you can, we can't go, all, go over all of them, but things that are maybe characteristic of what we are used to seeing in the American context, things that perhaps pose a particular danger that we need to um, evaluate very carefully, use wisdom as our, use scripture as our guide, and see if these things are true of us. We want to be honest, we want to be realistic, we want to be truthful, and we want to honor Christ in this. So we wanted to, so in looking at uh, Sardis and also applying this to our own day, what are some of the causes of these deaths? What, 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 is, what is killing the church right now? So here's a few things, and some of these things are, they're, they're very humbling. 
Some of them are shocking. Some of them may, you know, some of these things may make you mad. Who likes to be called dead? What church, what person likes to be called dead? We're not, we're not very good at taking criticism. We're not. Perhaps that's something I should add to the list. But here's one thing. Weak leadership, taking care of a, like taking care of a flock or tending a garden, needs water, needs light, needs pruning, and needs time. And if the leadership in the church is lackadaisical in one or all of those things, then the church breaks down. The church has a hard time working harmoniously. And when that happens, things start to die. And it may be difficult to spot at first. But if the leaders are ungodly, fail to set an example, as is stipulated in 1 Timothy, then usually the church suffers along with it. And of course, that is something that Jeremy and I would say, hey, we're accountable to you guys, for the, to the Lord first and foremost, but to you guys as well. You, you, you are here to, to humble us, to keep us in check, to keep us accountable, to, to let us know what our needs are, because we have our blind spots as well. We don't see everything, do we, Jeremy? That's why communication is so important, and that's why time is important as well, so we walk with each other so that we can be good and faithful elders to you. But we are accountable, and if we are weak in our leadership, if we stink it up setting an example, you guys are going to suffer, and that will rob Christ of his honor. He is to be honored in this church. Here's another one. Church is full of division. This was something that really discouraged Paul. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's like, I hear there's divisions among you. What's going on? Christ has united us. Why, why are we undoing that unity by being divided? Again, not just, not just doctrinally. Okay, We are not going to be in perfect agreement over every single nuance of doctrine, and that's, and that's okay, quite frankly. But in terms of division, speaking toward the presence of th- things we've talked about a little bit already, lack of forgiveness, a lack of working things out. You know, typically in, in today's church, if we don't like something, we just take off. There's an unwillingness to reconcile, to work through things. And, and you know, we, I may sound like a broken record saying that, but that is something that has to be characteristic of a faithful church if it doesn't want to die, is a willingness to walk with each other, to show forgiveness, to be willing to restore uh, relationships that are either broken or compromised. And to work through things, and to, and to and, and as I've said before, to let one another be wrong, for heaven's sakes, you know, <laughs> I sometimes wonder how we can have how how the church can be full of people who take themselves so seriously that they can't extend mercy when someone says something wrong about them. Okay, go to that person, be have a forgiving heart, and work through the problem. And sometimes those things are long term. But the church is meant to walk together in that fashion, constantly forgiving, constantly showing grace. Here's another one. No evangelistic fervor. The church does not have a heart for the lost, and that is something that we want to be alive and well at our church. And that can take time to develop. That can take some training, because in some cases, evangelism can be scary. We live in a very spiritually polarized nation. Evangelism, confronting people on their unbelief, telling them, hey, there's one Lord and King, there's one Savior, his name is Jesus, and if you reject him, you will perish eternally in the flames of hell. No one likes to hear that. That's an indictment. You're judging. You're condemning. Okay? So evangelism can be hard. That takes time. But if a church has no evangelistic fervor, is not winning souls to Christ basically seeing the kingdom expanded through evangelistic work, then that's a church that's going to die. 
Listen to what Paul was doing. He's a great example for us in Acts 9.22. Before he was called Paul, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. You ever think of evangelism that way? Man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to confound some people. I'm going to confound these people, man. I'm going to prove that Jesus is the Christ. It's amazing language, guys, and gives a great, uh, great clarity on the power of the gospel, proving that Jesus is the Christ. We live, we live in such a skeptical culture, but when we go out and pr- proclaim Jesus faithfully, we are giving proof, undeniable proof, based on Scripture's witness that Jesus is the Christ. There was a humility about Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, we read, To the weak I became weak, that I, may, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I, might, I may by all means save some. Paul had such a heart for the lost. And it's amazing, considering where he came from, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, locked in that Old Testament legalism, and now he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at the transformation that's taken place. Paul is a man who was alive. Oh, to live like that, right? To have a heart for those who hate the gospel, to those who hate God, but to have the mercy, to have the compassion to humble ourselves and to go to them and plea with them to receive Christ by faith. It's high time we were faithful to that calling, have some evangelistic fervor. Here's another thing, and this stems from evangelism, is discipleship. You know, if there's no discipleship, if we're not if we're not passing truth on to the next generation or amongst ourselves, no one is going to be called to the ministry. Ministry is filled with men, presumably, who have been trained, who have been discipled. One of these passages I love is found in 2 Timothy 2.22. So 2T22, that's how you remember that one. 2T22. These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you realize right there, Paul is describing five generations of teaching. The things which you have heard from me, so me and you, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Who's the fifth? Well, that's Jesus. Comes from him, right? The doctrine of Christ passed on. And that, of course, has continued today. That's why, that's why I'm preaching up here, because some faithful man or men invested in me to learn how to teach God's word. And that's what we also want to have present here, is the faithful passing on of sound doctrine, but also a fervent love for Jesus Christ. Here's another thing. Here's, how, here's another way that the church slowly commits suicide. The preaching is weak sauce, right? No depth, no substance, hardly any scripture. It, again, just pithy statements, you know, little anecdotes, you know, here to kind of give you your spiritual B12 shot to kind of get you on your feet and add a baby so that you can face your week, right? But where's the power? Where's the truth? Where's the unction? Where's the pleading with you to rely upon the sufficiency of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit? Where's the depth of teaching of Scripture where we implore one another in a spirit of love and humility to abide in Christ? Where is that? We don't want weak sauce preaching in here. Turn with me really quickly to Acts 28. Acts 28.31. Got a great example of this. Acts 28. 31. Well, let's, let's start at 30. And he, 
stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. This is Paul. What was Paul doing in this time? He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Now, packed in that one verse, preaching the kingdom of God. If you're preaching the kingdom of God, you are teaching the entirety of Scripture, even the hard parts, even the parts full of judgment and wrath and things of that nature. Giving them the whole story. This takes time, but it also takes careful attention, uh, uh, keeps careful attention to the text. See, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and that takes, that takes diligence. Because if you're preaching about the kingdom of God and you're, and you're opening up the scriptures, that takes a lot of intense study to demonstrate to people how all of scripture points to the person and work of Christ. It's hard to just do that shooting from the hip. No, it takes time, it takes study, it takes wisdom from the Holy Spirit, it takes faithfulness, because it's not easy. We don't want any weak sauce preaching. Here's another thing to, to tag onto this point, is from Titus 2.15. Paul is exhorting Titus, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is to disregard you. Okay, so if I say, Hey! I'm talking to you. I look at all of you, you know, really carefully. Talking to you. You can't, you can't ignore this. You can't disregard this. I'm not going to let you walk out of here unless I know that the Scripture has been fired at you. I want to know that God is speaking to you. No one, Paul says, let no one disregard you. Again, these aren't moral platitudes. This is the Word of God, and it's binding. And it has power and authority over your life, whether you claim Christ or not. The Word is either going to save you or it's going to condemn you. It's going to do one of those two things, but it's not going to do anything in between. And weak sauce preaching is going to present that there is something in between. That at the end, it's all going to pan out for you. God loves you anyway, and He's not going to just throw you into hell. Because that wouldn't be very loving, would it? Let no one disregard you. That goes to the next point. A, a dying church is a church where Scripture is not seen as authoritative. Scripture is one of many historical sacred writings offering key insights at being your, the best version of yourself. If I ever say that, just pick me up and throw me out of here. I'll help you. Scripture isn't being seen as authoritative today. Now, let's turn in our Bible. I guess you don't have to turn there. I'll read this. From Joshua 1.8, speaking to Israel very clearly. Um, here's what the Lord says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Okay, And yes, to that, to, there was a degree of even material success, ultimately spiritual success. But the key is that Joshua following Scripture and passing it on was not seen as something that was optional. It was something that he was confronted with. It was his sacred duty to keep the law, to observe it, to meditate on it, an ongoing thing, not to set it aside, but to obey it and to delight in it. Very important. Here's another one. I think I got this one right. Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah, the grass withers, verse 8 here. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, which means its abiding authority has no expiration date, nor can it be displaced by any other thing. It's time for the church 
to take Scripture seriously again. A church, a, a church is a dead church because it doesn't take Scripture seriously. You know, you've, you've often heard some people quip jokingly about the ten suggestions, right? These are good, helpful keys to living a great and prosperous life, but they're just, God is coming down on the mountain in fire, terrifying everyone to make a few suggestions. Take it or leave it, but really, if you don't want to do it, then, you know, I just, I don't want to bother you. No, the Lord is coming down with his presence and all of his power and authority telling, this is what I am saying. You are to obey. You are to trust in what I have said and to respond accordingly. I mean, this is, it's, 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 impossible to spend too much time on a point like this. This is one of the main reasons the church is today where it is. It doesn't take God's word seriously. It doesn't see God's word as the means by which God imparts life to people, to dead people. And I'm sure that the church of Sardis went through this very same thing. At some point, they started becoming self-sufficient and they stopped taking God's word seriously. They stopped seeing it as authoritative. They stopped seeing it as life-giving, something completely dependent upon. They were dependent upon. So here's another thing, worship of the status quo. This often rises from the previous. We allow our traditions to displace the authority of scripture. It can also lead to a refusal to try new things to be creative within the bounds of Scripture, even to make good and necessary changes. Sometimes, even from the very beginning, we may institute something. Perhaps it's not biblical, but it flew under the radar, right? But it became so hallowed and so important, we could never let it go. And we would rather the church die than let go of that one thing. Or we would rather break fellowship than let go of that one thing, which we have liberty in. So, we don't want to worship the way things are. We don't want to, be, you know, in one manner of speaking, be spiritual sticks in the mud that are unwilling to grow, unwilling to adapt, not willing to make provision for good and necessary changes. And most of these things are internal. Keep that in mind. When we think of threats to the church, we always, sometimes we unfortunately put it into the context of, oh, what's the government going to do? Are they going to come by and slap us with all these fines and restrictions because we're not doing what they say? We think of all these threats as external, when in fact the primary threats are internal. They come from the flesh. They, come from, they emerge from unbelief. I mean, sometimes all the, church, all the world has to do is wait, right? Is wait for the church to die. Because there's so much infighting and so much division and so much love of tradition. Sometimes they, they, the, the world can look at the church sometimes and say, hey, they're just copying us. They're just engaging in their own form of idolatry. We just have to wait. They'll just destroy themselves. And so it goes, unfortunately. Idolize those traditions. You know, we've heard it before, seven last words of a dying church. You know what those seven words are? We've never done it that way before, right? <laughs> seven last words of a dying church. Refusing to change, mature, or grow. And it's, there's no chapter and verse attached to it, but I firmly believe it is a biblically solid concept, is that you grow or you die. The church does not like stagnation. Here's one more thing. Again, there's so many more, but here's one more thought. Compromise. Compromise. Flirting with the world. And I don't mean, I mean things that are truly worldly, right? Things outside the realm of liberty. We, we have all compromised there at one point or another in our lives. But flirting with the world, when, it is, when, when the church becomes in, indistinguishable from the culture, so instead of transforming it through the gospel, we end up becoming like it. 
We end up wanting to be man-pleasers. We want to be, you know, the big word, relevant, right? We want to be relevant. We want to appeal to people. Let me tell you something, guys. The gospel does not appeal to dead men. It does not, it does not appeal to people. You're telling them they're sinners. You're telling them they need to repent. You're telling them that there is one word of God. There's one revelation in the Bible. You're telling them there's one God. There's one Savior. And then you start telling them that the world isn't bajillion years old and they're not stardust bumping back and forth into one another. That's offensive. That's narrow-minded. It's intolerant. And it needs to be silenced, right? It's not appealing. So I would just say stop trying to be a friend of the world. Stop trying to appeal. Because when you go down that track, that is the path of death. If you want to appeal to the world, just be, I would, ask yourself, I would ask you too, are you ready to die then? Are you just ready to die? Because compromise is a slippery slope. Once you start that direction, you'll give up all kinds of convictions so that the world likes and appreciates you. And that is a sad place for the church to be. Again, a dead church's reputation will always be divorced from reality. The one thing that we can be thankful for, even in a very hard text like this, is that Jesus knows the difference and is willing to tell us so. Be glad that someone is willing to tell you the truth. See, in, in dead churches too, we have a hard time taking correction. We have a hard time taking rebuke. But I keep thinking of the way Jesus is presented in this, this passage, you know, with the, the burnished bronze and the eyes of fire, and not to mention that sword going forth from his mouth. Like, are you honestly going to tell this guy no? <laughs> You do at your own peril. And here's the thing too, in all of this, typically dead churches are not aware of their own deadness. I think of Judges 16.20. Remember Samson took the Nazarite vow and he basically failed in all of them. But the one thing he didn't do, he had not cut his hair yet, but then he finally revealed the secret to Delilah. Fell asleep, his hair was cut, and then he was awakened. And Delilah said, Samson, the the, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And that's what so many churches do today. Trouble? Issues? Fine. We will go out as at other times and shake ourselves free. Vindicate ourselves so that everyone knows how great we are and, and you know, uphold our reputation. But that church did not know that the Lord had departed from them. What a sad state of affairs. What, what, what a state of affairs that we do not ever want to uh, fall into. We want to be a church that is alive. And we want to be alive and we want to know it. Okay. So when we, we look at all the challenges we face and, you know, sometimes we, we, we think of the response, you know, what are we going to do, roll over and die? You know, but a, a church that's already dead can't even do that, can't even roll over because it's dead. And the Lord, may the Lord deliver us from that. Let the Spirit be active in our midst, empowering us, equipping us continually, giving us all wisdom and strength to preach the kingdom of God. Thankfully, the Lord gives a remedy. He gives us counsel. Okay? So look at your text again. We're only on verse 2. He says this, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of of my God. So let's start there. So there's four primary commands. Here they are. Caffeinate, invigorate, meditate, and dedicate. Okay, two things. They all rhyme. Here's the first thing. Caffeinate. Wake up! Oh, so they were mostly dead. Okay. There are some people in there. See, but here's here's the more profound truth, though. When, When Christ says wake up, 
he is saying, don't, he's not saying wake up from your sleep. He is saying wake up from your deadness, which points us to this, that only Christ can resurrect or restore a dead church. His words are true and they are life. It takes the voice of Jesus himself to say, hey, wake up. Sometimes we need to say that to each other. Like, hey, sleeper, wake up. Hey, dead person, wake up. I mean, this church looks just like the world because it's described as dead. What can revive a dead church? Certainly not going back to the very things that killed it. The point here for us, guys, right here and now, is that only the words of Christ will revive us and sustain us. It's it's quite simple. Caffeinate. Wake up. O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Here's the next thing. Invigorate and strengthen the things that remain. We can strengthen those things. Why? Because the Lord is still with his church. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. See, things start dying. Everything else dies with it. But he said, hey, there's still a few things that remain. He says this, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So, so finish these things. Finish what you started. Do them with excellence. Do them with love. Do them in such a manner to where you will bear fruit. That's what it means to complete your works. Don't be loveless. Don't be mediocre. Don't don't leave the task unfinished. Invigorate. Strengthen those things that remain, and other things will follow. Other things will be revived. Other things will be strengthened. And then the church will reflect will return to maturity and to walking in faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Meditate. So remember what you received and heard. Sometimes it really is that simple. And, it's, and this is especially important for today's church because when the church runs into trouble, when you have something as bad as deadness, typically we think that the, the issue that we're currently fraught with is something that is very complex, something that requires a, a, a multitude of solutions. You know, like a program or a new fad or trend. Perhaps you got to throw your old preacher out and get a new guy. Maybe you need some more emotional manipulation. Maybe you need to have more songs that are more repetitive, you know, get the Holy Spirit charged up, because as we know, the more you repeat that bridge, the more the Holy Spirit is present. So, had to put that in there. Again, no, no program, no fad, no gifted preacher emotional manipulation can stand in for or accomplish what only Christ can do. So he's simply saying, remember what you have received and heard. What, is, what are those things that you have received and heard? The very basic things of what makes a church a church. Let's, let's start. If you had a dead church, where are you going to start? Let's start with the gospel. How about that? Let's start with the gospel. Start with talking about the basics. The good news. Christ is Savior. Let's talk about the kingdom of God, how how he's expanding his kingdom and dominion through the preaching of the gospel. The basics. Then let's start by saying that this is all by grace and not by the works, not by works of righteousness that you conjured up, which actually ended up killing you. That's why we are where we are. You were claiming self-sufficiency. And keep reinforcing those things. Very simple things. Go back to the basics. Remember, remember what makes this all possible. Remember that it's all a work of grace. Remember it's all and only possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work, both to bring you to life and to complete that work that was 
started. You don't need anything else. Simply return to what the Scriptures call the old paths. You don't need new things. You need to go back to all the old stuff and trust in Christ alone. Here's the fourth. Dedicate and keep it. So don't, so don't revive those things and then quickly deviate again once you think things are okay. No, keep at it. Hold fast to it. In verse 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it. You know, we've said time and time again that one of the main reasons that Christians sin, why does the Christian sin? Because you forget who you are in Christ. Just, you know, remember. Remember those things. Remember that you are His. Remember that you are dependent upon Him. And keep that it isn't there. It just says, and keep. Okay? Hold it fast. Don't let go of those, those first things. And then it says, yeah, by the way, <laughs> repent. Repent from the things that killed you. So a change of action, but also a change of mind, a change of the inner, the, the inner disposition of the church. To repent, to go from death to life, from compromise to conviction, from mediocrity to excellence, from forgetfulness to remembrance, from sleepiness to watchfulness. Don't, don't let the church become like the city. Don't get... Don't get raked over, don't get invaded, don't get destroyed, don't get sacked. And also from weakness to strength, just like Paul tells the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Listen to this, let's move on in our text. Therefore, if you do not wake up, see, so he's told them all this, right? He's given them perfect clarity as to their course of action, and they can do it because they are God's people. So, and His Holy Spirit is with them. So he says, but if you don't wake up, if you don't obey what I say, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what hour I will come to you. Of course, it's going to come like a thief when you don't expect it in the dark, and, and you're going to pay. You're going to suffer loss. And I don't think this particularly speaks of the second coming in other passages in Scripture. The second coming is spoken of, described by Jesus as showing up like a thief in the night. Thieves aren't welcome. And that's another thing we have to think of. If you do not repent, when Christ shows up, he will not show up as a welcome guest. And if he does not show up as a welcome guest, he will discipline you. He will discipline this church. But here it's speaking of, and he's using the same language, I think, to really push his point. I will show up like a thief when you do not expect. Unexpected, unannounced, and also undesired. Terrible place for a church to be in, but Christ gives them the mercy to say, hey, here's how it's going to go down. Here, the th- here's, here's, here I am exposing you as a faithful shepherd of my church. Here's, here is what I am commanding you to do. And yet, if you do not repent, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come like a thief, and you don't know at what hour I will come to you. And there's a blessing for the person who is found by Christ when he returns, whose hand is at the plow, who is busy serving, who has not grown slack, who has not grown careless, who has not grown dead. But then he says this. Here's the challenge. Verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, Let's look at that first. So come like a thief, and it's going to be like the sacking of Sardis. But there are some among you, even though you are a dead church, there are some here who have not soiled their garments. So what Jesus is promising here is, his, his presence. And here's what this means. In the Old Testament, remember, that when, you were, when you were going to worship God, when you were either in the temple or especially if you were a priest, 
Um, and this kind of goes back to our study on holiness. Remember, for a person to be holy, there was a preparation that had to take place. And sometimes that required certain, maybe removing your sandals like Moses or putting on certain, certain attire that was uh, set apart from your normal dress. And this is what this is alluding to. There are, in, the, in the Old Testament, soiled, dirty garments disqualified a worshiper from worshiping. It dishonored God. And here it is used symbolically of our spiritual conduct and clothing, but also it speaks to our character. There are some in Sardis who have integrity, who are really alive, who have not flirted with the rotting elements of compromise. So it speaks to the, the preparation and the holiness of certain people in that church. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we prepared? Do we, are, are we living our lives as holy people, as prepared consecrated people? Do we show up to Lord's Day worship with our hearts prepared, ready to worship the Lord, ready to serve, ready to be ministered to? Or are we contributing to the rot? Are we contributing to the division? Are we hypocritical? Are we comfortable? Are we lukewarm? Are we unbelieving? All those things are the elements of death to a church. And it's time to take an honest evaluation of that, of whether or not that is true of us, and let us not be naive to the possibility. Says this of these people, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. It doesn't mean that we are worthy in and of ourselves, it's that we have walked consistently with the salvation that has been granted to us. We are walking by grace. We are walking by faith. Now, I love this word walk. One of the first places it's mentioned is back in Genesis chapter 5. Remember the, the generations of, of, of Adam, his, all of his progeny, and what's the main thread we see in that, in that chapter? And he died. And he died. And he died. He lived this long. He died. And you think, man, he lived 930 years. Is this guy ever going to die? Yep, he died. Death had spread to all men. But we run into this guy named Enoch. Genesis 5, 22 to 24. I think this is great, a great description of the believer's walk with Christ. We only know a couple things about Enoch. One, he walked with God. Secondly, and we all love this, he was not. Like, what a way of describing it, right? Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Here's the point. The church that is like Enoch cannot die. It lives. It's, it's a church that is full of life. It will not see death. It will be persecuted. It will be attacked. It will face its own challenges. But the church that walks with God as Enoch did will not die. They will fellowship with their Christ and be with him and be like him. They will walk with him in white because they are worthy. So they will walk in the purity of Christ. That's another promise that Jesus gives, his, not just his presence, but his purity. They will walk in white for they are worthy. Important historical note here. Sardis, one of the things it was known for was its red dye. Kind of takes us back to Isaiah. Though your, skin, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. So characteristic of Sardis was, its, was this industry, this red dye. So the image of walking in white expresses the difference between the righteousness of Christ, or the clothing, the garment of salvation, and the red that was emblematic of being one of Sardis. Not so much living there as being a product of that city. Um, the book of Revelation talks about earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. It's not wrong to dwell on the earth. It is wrong to make this present uh, order that is passing away your home, to identify with the world. 
spiritually. That's the problem. So these people walk justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified in all of Christ's righteousness. Another thing Jesus offers, his protection. Jesus offers his protection, meaning that he will not blot out, he says. Here's his promise. Kind of draws us to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the other New Testament texts that actually employs a Greek double negative for emphasis. So if there's any doubt in your mind that this promise can be violated, go to the double negative. Nope, not happening. There is therefore now no, not any, none at all condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Same thing. I will not, no, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Now, the Old Testament allusion here, pretty important, goes back to Exodus 32. Now, I'll describe this so we don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 32, that is the tale of the golden calf. And the Lord comes down, he's angry with his people, he's about to, he's about to judge them, even destroy them. And we get to verse 31, and Moses says this, Oh, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin very well, but if not, please wipe me out from your book which you have written. Okay? The book that Moses is speaking of seems to be a, a, a literal physical ledger with the names of those who are part of the Old Covenant community, those who are part of the people of Israel. Their names were recorded. And if you died, well, you were no longer among the land of the living, so your name was removed. It was blotted out. You were not part of the community because you had, you had passed on. And so what, the, what Moses is saying to, to the Lord, he's like, take me instead, kill me, I'd rather die. You've promised, you've made promises to these people. So I would rather die I would rather be removed from the land of the living than you destroy them. That's Moses' plea. So there really was a, a book, a, a, a ledger of, of people. You read something like this in Psalm 69, 28. May they be wiped out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Okay. So there is a book. Now, remember, the Old Testament is filled with types and shadows. So we come to the New Testament. There is this book of the living, the book of God's community, but there is also a book in heaven, okay? So that's the reality. In Philippians 4.3, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul is a Pharisee, a student of the Torah, would understand, yes, there is, he, he's well aware of this literal ledger that existed in the time of the people of Israel that kept track of who was part of that covenant community. Now, with the new covenant in effect, there is also a book of life, a heavenly book of life, and who written in it are the, are the names of those who belong to God, who are part of the new covenant community. And simply here is the promise that their name will never be blotted out. See, in the old covenant, when you died, your name was blotted out. And Jesus is saying here, under the new covenant, under my administration, under my priesthood, you will never be blotted out. If you belong to me, there is no risk that your name will ever be blotted out of this book. So this war it's not simply a warning, it's a sure promise of something that will never happen for those who truly belong the Lord, to the Lord. So the faithful in Sardis can walk in confident assurance that Christ has their future secure. And here's one more thing. Jesus promises his praise. Okay, it's an, an, an acknowledgement here. So look at, the, uh, look at the text again. It says, I will not erase his name from the book of life, 
and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So we don't have only written confirmation. There's all this talk about affidavits lately. But we have a heavenly affidavit that testifies to the fact that we belong to Christ. But it's not only in written form, it's verbal form. We have the king of heaven and earth giving the final word on the matter. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Oh man, you know what the father loves? The voice of his son. To hear his son speak. Because that is the ultimate word. That is the final analysis. It is the ultimate judgment and confirmation. And no one is going to ever undo that. So take heart. I mean, these are, these are immense encouragement here. With people who are a part of a dead church and they still have this guarantee that those who walk with him in white, they walk with him because they are worthy. Their name will not be taken out of the book of life. They belong to him and he will confess their name before his father and before his angels. So heaven itself, see, 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 the, see the divergence here, okay? What, what is Sardis worried about at the beginning? What's their concern? The world says, the earthly community says, you are alive, okay? But you're dead. You know what matters? Is that before heaven, before the hosts of angels and God the Father himself, Jesus' testimony of you is that you are alive. You are in the book of life. That's what matters. Because face it, we are at irreconcilable differences with the unbelieving community here. They, their testimony would be, you're dead. You're dead to me. You have no life. That's what the unbelieving world says. You, and the church is supposed to be um, a repository of that life. We offer the life-giving power of the gospel. So let it be said to us from Christ that we have been found faithful that we responded to his message, that we walked with him and did not soil our garments. We did not continue to compromise with the world. We didn't go out of our way to make the world like us. We let the gospel do the work of making men's hearts alive and pleased with the word of truth. Okay. That's what we want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 10, 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That's the witness each of us wants. We want that as a church. We want that as individuals. We want to be faithful. Close with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. So the question, of course, is this. Are you listening? Are you hearing the voice of Christ? It's, it's, you think, man, how, how loud? What is the, the spiritual volume of the message that has to be expounded to wake people up? And it's a very, it should concern us, guys. Churches all over the place are dying because they've bought the world hook, line, and seeker. They're in, they're in bed with the world. Instead of tra- seeing it transformed, they've become like it. Okay. We don't want to be a church like that. We want to be a church that says this effectively. I would rather die than die. <laughs> you know, I'd rather, I, w- I would rather face affliction and die for the cause of the gospel, then die from rot, then die from compromise, then die because I was so obsessed with being accepted and liked and approved of by the world. And let me tell you, 2021 is going to be a test of that resolve. It's going to be a test of that conviction. Okay, So let us walk with God. If there's one application we could draw from this text for this year and for the ensuing years, Walk with God and do not soil your garments. Okay. I believe, and I know many of you do, that 
the Lord has much more to do. He has much more redemptive work to do in this world. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that work. I want to be faithful. And thankfully, we serve a faithful God who will give us the strength to do that. Let's be a church that's alive, friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love for us, for your word. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn from the church of Sardis. And thank you for the, uh, also for the faithful men. I really stand on the shoulders of giants of men who have gone through this text and have taken it apart. And you know, I want to thank you for them and, and give them uh, due honor. Uh, pray, Lord, that we would be a church that is, that is alive, that the, uh, the life of the Spirit, the power of the gospel in us, in our midst, would be undeniable. But we don't want to fake it. We want it to be, a, we want it to be the real thing. We don't, want, we don't want to be a church that is guilt, guilty of being window dressing, that pretends to have the goods, that pretends to be um, thriving in the power of the Holy Spirit. But within these walls, Lord, as we meet, meet together and even scatter to do the work of the kingdom, and we would be found faithful and uncompromising, that we would be a church full of, of vigor, but also a church that is full of, of love for you and love for one another, to have a heart for the lost, um, to be the real thing. Lord, uh, help us walk with you. I pray that you would not let us die, that we would even have a sense of holy dread at a text like this, that we are being confronted by Jesus himself, the Lord and Savior of his church, who simply loves us too much to not tell us that we're dead. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that true word. Give us humility, Father, for when those elements of death, those elements of rot are identified in our own lives, that we would have the humility to respond to it and to be thankful that a faithful brother or sister was willing to point that out. Help us to be zealous, to repent, to see, to see ourselves the way that you see us, and to, to uh, apply Scripture and to be dependent upon you so that we can mature, so that we can truly be alive in Christ as we claim. Bless us, Lord. Bless our time in worship and in the Lord's table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.